0: I'm Mo Kelly, and for Oscar Ramirez as host of The Daily Dive, a daily news podcast covering some of the top stories making waves in the news. You can catch a new episode of The Daily Dive Monday through Friday on iHeartRadio, and it's ready for you when you wake up. Here on The Daily Dive Weekend Edition, we bring you some of the best stories we've covered during the week. A massive $12 million settlement has been reached between the city of Louisville and the family of Brianna Taylor, who was killed during a no-knock raid by police back in March. What is eyebrow-raising is that the settlement also includes police reforms to be implemented. Tim Craig, national reporter for The Washington Post, has all the details.
1: Um, well, the reforms deal with making it a little bit more visibility about when police do serve search warrants or storm into somebody's house looking for evidence or looking for to arrest somebody about a little bit more visibility from who has sort of eyes on what is happening there. So under the steel, police commanders would have to sign off on all of this, and they would also have to sort of be more involved in the sort of the planning and the execution of these sorts of things to make sure that all reasonable steps have been taken to try to avoid a mistake or go into a wrong address or storming into a house where maybe there are children inside where the officers themselves do not realize that. So just taking more care and more diligence to make sure that these sorts of raids are conducted as safely as is possible. It also includes some other things to make the police department a little bit more accountable to the community by um, encouraging them to do like community service up to two hours a week, which they'll get paid to do, and also trying to encourage more officers to move into the city, I mean, into poor neighborhoods in the city to sort of reestablish real sort of community policing efforts.
0: Are there any benchmarks or enforcement provisions regarding these reforms, or are they just elaborate suggestions?
1: Well, that's a good question, and I don't know fully the extent that would be triggered if this is not done as outlined. But at the same time, it was a very clear from the press conference, that the city mayor, the city attorney, they all seem very much on board with implementing these reforms. Louisville is a pretty progressive city when you're looking at just the city itself. And I generally get the sense that city leaders are looking for a way to get out of what's really been a pretty big mess in their city. There's been protests every day. They are the focus of national attention every day. Celebrities from basketball stars to Beyonce are calling out their police department for, for what happened in this situation. I do think there's a sort of a genuine feeling that they want to move move on and move past this.
0: When you say move on and move past, does that then officially close the door for any chance of criminal prosecution?
1: Oh, no, no, no. See, that's a whole separate other issue. And that's what everyone stressed today, that there still remain two separate open investigations. The attorney general for the state of Kentucky, David Cameron, is investigating whether to bring criminal charges against the officers involved in uh, Breonna Taylor's death. And also the FBI is looking at this from a civil rights perspective about whether any of her civil rights were violated, and there could be charges stemming from that. So that is still very much out there. And frankly, that is sort of a big flashpoint that still remains to be seen in this case. You can see a scenario where the attorney general announces really any day now that he is or he's not filing charges. And that would have national ramifications on the state of things in this country, not just in Kentucky, but in this country, because I think this is a case that is being closely watched around the country.
0: Would there have been any wisdom in withholding this announcement of the settlement until a final decision was going to be made on the charges, if only because the country has not been protesting, looking for a settlement? They've been looking for charges. And this might be quickly forgotten if there are no charges brought or at least the issues of the protests have not been summarily addressed. Might this just be pushed aside if no charges are brought?
1: My sense is that the lawyers and Brianna Taylor's family was ready to sort of get the best deal that they could get with the reforms that they sought and they believed would be effective. And once that was sort of on the table, that they didn't see any reason to just keep delaying this down the road. And I think the city of Louisville and the mayor of Louisville very much wanted to get this off his plate. This is a city that has been very, very much sort of gripped by this chaos. There have been other shootings related to her case. There have been multiple weeks of fairly violent protests in some regards in a city that's not accustomed to that sort of upheaval. So I think I think there was a sort of a genuine feeling on both sides to see what they can do to sort of move beyond that stage. And there's no need to delay it another year or six months or however.
0: Is it fair to say that since charges may still be pending and that investigation is ongoing, that neither the city nor the Louisville Police Department has admitted any type of fault at this point?
1: As part of the settlement, they are not admitting any fault in the settlement. At the same time, $12 million is a very large amount of money, even for these sorts of police misconduct cases. Even many other controversial ones that we've heard about in recent years have seemed to stop about the $6 million mark.
0: He is Tim Craig, national reporter for the Washington Post. Thank you for making time for us today, Tim.
1: Thank you very much.
0: The military has confirmed it sought information on using a heat ray against D.C. protesters. If that weren't enough, there were other military-grade weapons being considered through startling investigative reporting by Dina Temple Raston, investigations correspondent for NPR, who will walk us through the inquiries and the subsequent implications.
2: Well, it was the military police, and this is in Washington, D.C., right? Not Portland, Oregon. So it's a little bit different. But the National Guard and military police were all involved, along with the Metropolitan Police, in trying to not necessarily quell the protests, but certainly control protesters in the nation's capital.
0: What do we know about the capabilities of this heat ray at this point? Because I assume the military would be very tight-lipped. About any technology, much less its capabilities?
2: Well, not this one, actually. This has been around for a couple of decades. And there, actually, if you go on YouTube, you can find quite a number of uh, military promotional videos about it. The heat ray, which makes it sound almost cartoonish. Right. <laughs> uh, it's actually on a, like a, an, or like a, like a ray gun that you would see in some sort of space cartoon. It's actually mounted on top of a truck. It looks like a giant satellite dish. And if you go on YouTube, you can find a lot of sort of promotional films about the ADS system that is put out by the military itself. And basically what it shows is that they use these millimeter waves, which are different than microwaves, that basically give a sensation on the skin of heat. And the videos are almost oddly comical, because they have sort of uh, high-ranking military officials who are sort of soft with this ray, and they immediately, it's kind of the sensation you have, they look like they've just been bitten by something. You know how you kind of start when mm-hmm. you've been bitten? Mm-hmm. That's what it looks like.
0: When you say it gets a sensation of heat, does it actually cause physical damage to the dermis, or is it just a sensation which registers as like being heat-like?
2: I think it's more the sensation of heat. And obviously, if you're protesting and all of a sudden you feel the sensation of heat, it's going to surprise you when you're going to sort of stop short of whatever it is you're doing. As far as I know, it has never been deployed inside the United States. There was some talk of it being deployed on the fringes of a G8 meeting in Pittsburgh. But like this talk that they did this time, it never really amounted to anything. It was one of the options that they discussed.
0: You took my next question because the obvious question was for me <laughs> was the extent of use. If it's been around for decades in some form or fashion, that means it's being used in some form or fashion, most likely. Is there any indication from your investigation where it has been used around the world?
2: Um, My understanding is that it's been used in crowd control overseas. Let me give you a generic example. The idea of it was always that, say, for example, you had a crowd outside an embassy somewhere, or you had a crowd that was descending on military soldiers who were on the field of battle, that it would be used in that sort of context.
0: Do we know if and when it's used from any promotional video or any type of information within military communications that you've seen that this is a weapon which is only used on a certain portion of the body or it could be used anywhere? And I want to make this comparison that although it's billed as being non-lethal, depending on how it's used, isn't there the possibility of it being lethal?
2: The idea behind it is that it isn't lethal. The idea is that this is something that you would use so that you wouldn't be using bullets. So what your option is a burning sensation instead of bullets, it's not, it's not a great option. But the idea has always been that this would not be a lethal device. But in the same way that there has been this other device that they were looking for from the DC National Guard is something called an LRAD, a long range acoustical device. An LRAD is very loud. And if you're standing next to it, it could at least temporarily deafen you in Mm -hmm. the same way that if you're standing right next to a siren, it would temporarily sort of ring your ears. These are all part of these weapons. I mean, this is a militarization of weapons that are being used on demonstrators. I'm not making any excuses for them whatsoever. All I'm saying is that the idea behind these weapons is that they're non-lethal weapons that could be used in crowd control. But as far as we've been able to tell from the reporting that we've done, this has never, ever been used. And LRAD has been used, of course. Uh, police use that. But something like this ADS system has never been used in the United States.
0: Is it fair then to wonder where there is an escalation in the terms of techniques or technologies which may be employed or are being considered to quell these demonstrations? I get the sense, and correct me if I'm wrong, that it's a new class of weaponry which had not been considered before.
2: Allegedly, it was briefly considered on the fringes of the G8 when the G8 was in Pittsburgh. But as a general matter, I guess I would take your supposition that there is sort of a militarization of this, a militarization of um, how you respond to protests. I think we've seen that across the board. I don't think it just has to do with these particular weapons systems or these particular devices. If you think about it, we have been looking at the way police departments have been up-armored for years now, I concern about these AP, APC-type vehicles that they drive or the kind of weapons that they're using. So this is sort of along that continuum. It's been a worrisome trend for a while, and this is just a continuation.
0: I started our conversation highlighting the fact that the military confirmed that it sought information on using a heat ray. Do we know how the story ends big picture in the sense of, They've sought the information. They've likely received the information. Do we have any indication of what they plan to do with the information in legitimate terms?
2: So let me just give you sort of the tick of how this went. So we understand from a military whistleblower who provided written testimony to the House Natural Resources Committee. He basically wrote that he was forwarded an email. He was a top National Guardsman in the D.C. National Guard. He's now a military whistleblower. He was forwarded an email that asked about these two systems, LRAD and the ABS, the active denial system. So he was sent this email, and it was asked, does the D.C. National Guard, he was sent this email from the Joint Forces Headquarters Command in Washington, D.C., and this email said, "Is the National Guard in possession of these two devices. And the way it was confirmed to us by the military is they said that the command inquired informally about capabilities across the full spectrum of non-legal systems to include the long-range acoustic device and the active denial system. And they said that they didn't possess those systems, and they didn't actually request them, and no further action was taken as a result of this email inquiry on the Joint Forces Commands part. What we understood from our whistleblower is his response about half an hour after this email was forwarded to him, was he responded and said, no, the D.C. National Guard doesn't have these systems. And then it was left at that. So this was at around 11 in the morning on June 1st. Hours later, federal police, D.C. police, and U.S. Park police cleared Lafayette Square in front of the White House with tear gas and smoke. And As we know, those were peaceful protesters who were cleared that way. So it's sort of a continuum of events, right? In the morning, they're asking Mm -hmm. about this. We don't know exactly where they were going to use them. Maybe it wasn't going to be Lafayette Square. Maybe it was going to be somewhere else where they thought there would be problems. But whatever it was, this was the continuation of events. And finally, they culminated, as we all remember, not only in the clearing of the square before the curfew started in D.C. So a lot of people were surprised. But in addition to that, remember, that President Trump then came out and had a photo op outside St. John's Episcopal Church, which is just on the side of Lafayette Square.
0: She is Dina Temple Raston, Investigations Correspondent for NPR. Thank you, Dina, for all that fantastic information, and thank you for coming on today.
2: You bet. Thanks for
0: having me. Nurses across the country have been dying from COVID-19 due to their profession's inherent dangers. We'll discuss the strain this has put on hospitals and the protections put in place to guard hospital staff at all levels with Christina Jewett, senior correspondent for Kaiser Health News.
3: I mean, I've been talking to nurses for months now, and they have a number of concerns. A lot of them have said they're not told who among their colleagues and patients has COVID. A lot of hospitals are actually mixing COVID patients into sort of the general patient population. And they're also being asked to reuse PPE that six months ago they would have been written up or fired for reusing PPE in the ways that they're required to right now. So there is high concern among nurses that that I've talked to as well.
0: I know that there might be HIPAA concerns involved with not knowing which of someone's colleagues may have tested for COVID-19. But is there any way from where you sit where nurses or other medical professionals can be alerted if someone within their ward or someone on their floor might have tested positive?
3: Well, there is contact tracing. I mean, there is a nationwide push inside hospitals and health facilities and also on the county health department level to alert people if they've been exposed and try to find out who they've been in touch with. So you'd expect this to be going on in hospitals, but it's not, you know, really uniform how it's being done, when and where it's being done. I've talked to nurses who had to really do their own legwork to find out. You know, sometimes they were told just sort of vaguely they were exposed and had to figure out what happened and which patient was it and how much contact they had with that patient. So there's a wide range of concerns among the healthcare workers we've been talking to.
0: You made mention of PPE and having to reuse it many times. Medical professionals have to reuse it. We're a good seven, seven and a half months in this COVID-19 crisis here in America. What policies or practices to your mind have been changed or improved to better protect nurses and other medical professionals?
3: From what I've heard, the supply chain problems are improving a little bit. There are efforts to conserve PPE and a lot of that involves disinfecting sort of the N95 respirators. And I have heard concerns about that because there's a variety of ways that that happens, some with chemicals, some with UV light, and there are sort of different benefits and drawbacks to those processes. And I've talked to nurses who feel like they're sort of being experimented on in real time. Let's uh, try this method and sort of see how it works. And the nurses who feel like they're going to stay healthy or not, depending on, on some of those processes. So the P C E situation I think is getting better, but I think the reuse is still pretty widespread.
0: When I began my conversation with you, we were talking more on a micro level. In other words, on a person-to-person level, on a nurse-to-nurse level and their concerns. On a macro level within the industry, is there a shortage of just nursing staff or is it trending in that direction as it is more and more difficult to either find enough support staff or nurses to cover all these shifts given the increase in workload?
3: Well, I know staff and companies have seen big upticks in demand during the surges and sort of the places and times when cases were really on the rise. And I've also heard anecdotally that nurses are, in some places, leaving the profession and, of course, they're dying. You know, as far as the national shortage, I don't know if that's the case. I haven't, you know, really heard that. But I know there's concern that there could be a second wave in the fall and that gives sort of hospitals and nursing homes all that more incentive to really sort of try to take care of their staff, keep them as safe as they can, and get them some rest.
0: You talk about that second wave. Does this change fundamentally with the inclusion of the flu virus in this equation as a variable? I assume we would have a larger need for hospital staff, but does the flu present any particular challenge from where you sit?
3: You know, the thing I've heard about the flu is that usually in the U.S. at this time of the year, we're watching sort of the southern hemisphere, in the southern hemisphere, from what I understand, isn't seeing much flu. What I've heard as far as the second wave in the fall is the concern that with colder climates, everyone goes back indoors and sort of the concern about the spread gets a lot more acute when everyone's sort of stuck together in a building versus out and about in the, in the wide open air. So that's kind of what I've heard about the second wave, but I'm probably not the, the, the foremost expert on that
0: topic. Well, we appreciate your expertise, nonetheless, in what you have been able to offer us. She is Christina Jewett, Senior Correspondent at Kaiser Health News. Christina, thank you again for coming on today.
3: All right. I appreciate it. You take care.
0: You can catch a fresh episode of the podcast every morning, Monday through Friday, on iHeartRadio. You can also follow us on social media, at Daily Dive Pod, on both Twitter and Instagram. I'm Mo Kelly in for Oscar Ramirez, and you're listening to the Daily Dive Weekend Edition.